Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Scott. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have met, connected on LinkedIn like I do with a lot of people, like we're all doing, I think, on social media. Uh, So... uh, and you're not necessarily in the fundraise tr- traditional fundraising space, but we're gonna put we're gonna we're gonna carve you a little niche spot here today. Um, I'm delighted to have you, Scott. How about we ask you to introduce yourself? Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Jason, and uh, very very uh, appreciate the uh, privilege of um, having this conversation. So my name is Scott Perry. I am uh, I live in a very small town called Floyd, Virginia, in rural southwestern Virginia, and uh, I wear a couple of different hats right now. I spent most of my adult life in a career as a musician and, and guitar studio owner. For the last six years or so, I have uh, been working in part through as a head coach in Akimba Workshops, which are uh, workshops, online workshops, 
initiated by Seth Godin, but now owned as a, a independent B Corps. So specifically, I'm the head coach of Seth Godin's The Creatives Workshop and The Freelancers Workshop, but I've coached in almost all of the workshops. And while I've been contracted to do that work, I've been building my own enterprise called Creative on Purpose. And Creative on Purpose is uh, creates programming that helps people invested in social impact lean into the, those endeavors with a greater sense of intention and equanimity. So it's all about if you are a person that's making a difference in the world, and I think fundraisers qualify as people that make a difference in the world, then I help you navigate the inevitable uncertainties and challenges inherent in that work with a greater sense of peace of mind uh, and purpose. Well, Scott, we're going to dive into, because uh, I got some time yesterday to or this morning to look at your Creative on Purpose handbook, so we're going to unpack a little bit about that. But I get to, um, here, here's how I get to give you a little clue about <laughs> that I know you're part of the country. Um, so um, how much time have you spent at the Fiddler's Convention in Galax? So I am a musician and uh, I have carved out, I carved out a, a, a living in this corner of the universe by being the person that played everything but bluegrass and old time music. Okay. Um, I have actually, so of course I'm very aware of the old time Fiddler's Convention. I have never actually attended um although some of my best friends are banjo players i do have a, a an allergy to banjo playing and so i i have to, i can only be in those kind of uh environments for a certain amount of time before i i just get all red and rashy and, and itchy and have to leave <laughs> so so my fundraising career scott uh started at a children's home joy ranch is mm -hmm. is a children's home there uh you're probably familiar they're about halfway between hillsville and galax my mm -hmm. oldest son who is 19 this year was born at the galax hospital and as you can imagine i know my way around the fiddlers convention and the uh uh, so Galax gets gets they they have this world renowned fiddlers convention and then Hillsville, which is just down the highway, the state highway there has the world's largest flea market every year. I think is what they their claim to fame is that right? That is exactly right, and I have attended that once. Um, it once was enough for me, but <laughs> right. uh, I think the entire town. The residents of the entire town open up their yards to they do selling yeah. their stuff uh, or renting their yards to people that want to come there and sell your stuff. And so you can yeah. literally it, it, it is akin to um, a bazaar in you know another country where you can literally get anything that you want at the at the uh, Hillsville uh, flea market or yard sale or whatever. Yes, yes, it. whatever it's called. Well, um, yeah, so I know you're part of the country and, uh, and I know where the little town of Floyd is. So it's, it's, for, I have to say you're probably my first guest on the podcast that's been from that. You're probably one of the few people who I've had on here who actually know that that little corner of the state actually exists. Cause a lot of people like, well, isn't that West Virginia or isn't that Kentucky or isn't that like an extension of Tennessee or something? Um, so it's a pleasure to have you on here. Scott, we always ask our guests to come on here in order to have the most unscripted sort of let's go wherever we want to go sort of conversation. We ask the person in your seat to come with a big idea or bold opinion. So, uh, and I've only prepped you with that much. Our listeners know that I don't know what that big idea or bold opinion is. And then we just unravel that for a little while. So what do you got for us today? Um, 
I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll share two. You know, the first is that uh, around this idea of being a difference maker, being uh, someone that wants to make meaningful change for the better happen through an endeavor that seeks to make a difference with and for people you care about. Um, to me, that is, you know, the the pathway to fulfillment and flourishing as a human being. Human beings are hardwired to build identity and forge meaning through the work that they do. And, you know, in this country, we spend a lot of our time thinking about our legacy as if it's something that we're going to leave behind. And my assertion, my big, bold, audacious idea is legacy is not what you leave behind. It's a difference that you're making right now. That work is inherently fraught, difficult, challenging. That's why it's so rewarding. And one of the ways that you can experience a greater sense of flourishing and uh, less stress in that kind of work is by leveraging another quote that I have shared in several of my handbooks, which is choose your story, choose your future. So I'll let you decide which one of those you want to, which rabbit hole you want to go down. Well, I think... I think what I'm most interested in, Scott, is I read through your your book, your hand, the handbook. I got I had time to uh, read through the handbook. Um, I think there's some merit in what you're talking about. As um, there's a lot of people in the fundraising community right now who are sort of trying to reconcile what their role is as it relates to some of the bigger tensions in our world today. So if you think about the, as we come on the backside of the pandemic and you think about some of the social unrest that, you know, we experienced last year um, and this tension between sort of the haves and the have nots and, and, and what I'm seeing sort of emerge from the, which totally relates to your idea as uh, sort of life and living our both personal and professional lives as a, as an endeavor, um, which is certainly language very consistent with what I would understand from the church is sort of having a vote. You know, we live through, we live out sort of a vocation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of some of us are sort of wrestling with in the fundraising space of what that endeavor is supposed to look like. I think some of us feel like we're sort of these passive sort of concierge to the rich and rich and, you know, affluent and others are, um, are fleeing the work. So, so just, just take that. And, um, there, there's enough, there's enough of your stuff that I read. Um, I, I know you can help us unravel that. Yeah. Well, you know, fundraising is really, um, important work and it is work that helps make a difference. Um, like lots of workplaces, um, there, you know, there's, uh, most, most everything is out of the fundraiser's control. Now yeah, they, 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 they have goals that they are pursuing, uh, and that they may or may not be getting, you know, the help and support that they need to help influence the results that they want to make. But ultimately, if you're a human being engaged in meaningful work, the outcomes are largely beyond your control. And that can lead to frustration and that can lead to burnout and overwhelm and all, you know, you spoke to the idea that a lot of fundraisers are leaving that vocation because it's just feels like it's impossible. And maybe they don't feel that that they are seen, heard and understood for the change that they want to make in the world. One of the things that 
I do with the clients that I work with, many of whom are fundraisers, by the way. You and I have a mutual friend, Penny Harris, who's been a longtime client of mine, is we start start with um, just some basic core ideas, like what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be happy? And how do I be more of both? Well, some fundamental human capacities are, number one, we are inherently social creatures. That is how we ended up being here dominating the planet because we began as um, you know something small, soft, and crunchy and delicious. And so the first problem that we had to solve as a species is how do we survive this day so that we can try to survive again the next day? And we did that by gathering, collaborating, cr- leveraging our creative capacity, another basic human um, capacity to solve the difficult problem of survival and that biology and evolution has made us inherently social creatures, biology and evolution. And that has led to our capacity for reason. And that has led to our capacity uh, as creatives, the ability to collaborate and solve interesting problems and make change happen. So if you begin there and then layer on top of that, this idea that the outcomes are largely beyond your control and you possess everything you control, you possess everything that you need to control in order to flourish and thrive through difficult and challenging work or situations and circumstances. You have the ability to frame your story, choose your story, choose your future. You get to, you get to, you get to frame or reframe your internal narrative uh, about who you are and about your situation and all those things. And you can, if you step into your power and agency, you can frame your choices and make a decision as to what you're doing next without attaching your well-being to the outcome that you seek. Because if you make decisions based on intention and integrity, based on your social uh, and rational and creative nature, you can you real you come to realize that the effort itself is the actual reward, and it's not the outcomes. To your point about rich and famous people, I know I work with and I know several rich and famous people. <laughs> Many of them are wonderful human beings. Many of them are complete jerks. Right. And so, why you know how is that possible? If you've achieved great wealth, why would you be unhappy? Why would you be mean-spirited? Well, fame and fortune is just an amplifier. If you were a good person before you got rich and famous, you'll be you, that that good person will be amplified through their fame and fortune. If you are a jerk before you become rich and famous, you will just be a bigger one when you are rich and famous. And so it's because you're pursuing you know, it's if if you're pursuing wealth and uh, attention for its own sake, you're going. It's an empty. It's an empty promise because you'll never get enough. And that's one of the things that I notice about some of the people that I work with that are deeply unhappy is they thought that following the rules and and getting what society said is the marker of of success was going to make them happy. And that's just just simply not true. What makes people happy is being seen, heard, and understood, and being engaged in meaningful work done with and for other people. So a lot of us 
a lot of us in this type of work. So if if if, if I sort of just did a if you and I did a, a scan of the 275 episodes that we broadcast of this thing, one of the things you're going to consistently find, Scott, is that you have individuals who sort of fit. Like the, the, these, these are highly social, highly social, highly relatable. Some of the friendliest, some of the best conversationists, conversationalist out there who want oftentimes gravitate towards the work or gravitate towards the sector for that meaningful work. So if you think about where you started your comments a few minutes ago, sort of the, 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 just the, the desire to have meaningful work and the willingness to acknowledge that we're social human beings, but then they end up in jobs where the efficiency of the desire for efficiency, predictability, and control, as I call it, that comes with essentially designing what are fundraising machines, right? So they're basically executing these large processes that don't give them a lot of that social interaction and don't give them that meaningful work. And it, and if I think back on all the, you know, the sort of the underlying message in a lot of these conversations, it was their willingness to sort of, or their unwillingness to sort of fight back and push back on a system that's not designed to give them what is very naturally what 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 it is they're looking for. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like they've landed in place. It's 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 literally like highly sociable people like you and I going to work for Ford Motor Company or something, and 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 operating and working on an assembly line or something. Mm. It, 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 you're, you're you're creating you're signing on for jobs that do not reflect who we are as human beings. And, and we call it meaningful. We call it social. We call it, we say we're going to take these people out to lunch and we never do. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, you, you referenced some of the systemic problems that we're facing as a, as a, you know, global community at the yeah. beginning of this. And, and now you're referencing, systemic problems within institutions that are charged with raising money for worthwhile causes. And, uh, you know, the, um, the, the first step is to notice and name these systemic problems. And mm -hmm. then you have to define, define and decide how you're going to dismantle them or how you're going to work, you know, how, how you're going to, in some cases, leverage the obstacles and turn them into opportunities or find ways to navigate through them. And I think a big part of, well, I think the premise here is we have one of the systemic problems that we face is that we've been fed a false story about yeah. what meaningful work is and what happiness is. And, and, you know, people, I was a school teacher for, for uh, a number of years out of school. I did that work because I thought that it would be meaningful. Yeah. People go into fundraising because it feels like it would be meaningful to raise money for worthwhile causes. I totally, totally get that. What I have come to, to learn is that meaning purpose is not inherent in particular occupations. I know people that, find meaning and purpose in the most menial work that you can imagine. Um, but they do that work 
on purpose, with purpose, and for purpose. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that story about JFK going to NASA and he's asking people why they do what they do. And he, he speaks to a, you know, a, a several janitors, you know, he says, what do you do here? And, you know, they, he says, well, I mop the floors and take out the trash. And he asks another one. And he says, well, you know, I clean the toilets and he gets to the third one and says, you know, what do you do here? And he, and the janitor says, I help put men on the moon. <laughs> right, right. You know, he found, I mean, he, he recognized that, what he did was part of a bigger, bolder vision, and he found meaning and identity um, in menial work because it served a purpose greater than himself. And I think that that I, I think that purpose comes from the inside out. So I've been recently reading a lot of Parker Palmer, and he is a mm-hmm. you know a Quaker and talks a lot about let your life speak and um, have faith the way will uh, appear. And it's this idea that, you know, we are, we are born with a purpose and we have to let that purpose speak and we'll know that it's speaking truthfully or because it will resonate. It will resonate not in our heads, but it will resonate in our bodies, in our hearts, in our gut, because it, you know, when things are, you know, we can feel it when things are aligning. And so, again, you know, it's quite possible that you can be engaged in work and be told that this is how you're going to keep your job or this is how, we're, you know, we define doing a good job. You know, did you make this amount of money? Did you get extract this donation from this donor? But again, ultimately, the outcome is 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 not yours uh, to determine. All you can do is uh, is put forth your best effort. All you can do is do that work in alignment with who you really are, what your core values and guiding principles are, what your core talents and skills are, the things that you were kind of born naturally good at, and the hard and soft skills that you've earned on the job and you know through school, and doing that work as much as you can with it. And for people that share your values and need your talents to enhance their lives. And I think in fundraising uh, that, you know, leaning into that human to human connection and doing human work of creating a shared vision. You know, donors aren't getting any meaning or identity from, well, they, they, they may get status from having their name associated with a large donation, of course. But I think most people that are donating large sums of money don't want to just see their name appear on a plaque or, uh, you know, in a in a pamphlet. I think that they want to feel that they are part of something bigger than themselves. And so I think in the fundraising world, one of the, the, the dynamics that needs to change is that the fundraiser needs to be seen as a member of a community, in community with the donor and with the the recipients of 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 the donation, and they are the most important part because they're the means by which the money comes through them to make the good, do the good that that the donation was uh, made for. So there, there, there's been a couple points in what you've said thus far, and. In in my in my first book, I t- I talked about this idea of the inverse relationship between growth and control, and 
And I repeatedly say to fundraising professionals in my seminars and so forth about how fundraising has historically up, up, I mean, remains to be very much designed for the sake of control when in fact, because it's a function, it's largely a function of growth. And and to get that growth, you're going to have to relinquish control. Am I to guess that to find that meaning and to have some of that, Am, am I to am, am I sort of piecing together sort of some of the things that you're saying um, that to have that meaning and purpose that we're maybe perhaps looking for we're going to have to relinquish control? I love what you you just said, and I would just um, I would reframe relinquish control as surrender, not surrender in terms of giving up, but surrender yeah. in terms of recognizing that pushing the river is just going to be make you exhausted. Uh, you know, we have to allow, uh, we have to go with the flow and we have to keep our eyes on the actual prize. And the actual prize is the intention and integrity of our efforts. And if we pay attention to that, that is reward enough. And the thing that I find, you know, in that Venn diagram that I was setting up earlier, like, who are you? What are your core values and guiding principles? What are your, your talents and skills? You know, what do you do? What, what are the things that you're naturally good at? And what are the skills hard and soft that you've earned along the way? And then where do you belong? You know, who are the people that need your values or share your values and need your talents and skills to enhance their lives? If you pay attention to those things, the other things that we are often seeking will naturally occur and they naturally occur as renewable resources that we can reinvest in meaningful work. So purpose, passion, prestige, prosperity, all these things that we chase are not the ends. They're naturally occurring means from starting where you are with what you have with whoever you find yourself with and doing that work again with intention, with integrity, putting forth your best effort and letting, to your point, letting go of all those attachments that are really just um, help making you complicit in your own sur- suffering because those things are not yours to have or to, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to get them. And it's not actually the actual point. The point is to put forth your best effort and derive meaning and, and identity from doing work that's worth doing with and for other people. So fundraising at its best, and by my definition, is oftentimes what I, re- I refer to it as field work. It's work that is done out in the field. And every every employer that I've ever worked for, when I was doing the most meaningful work, I was in the field. I wasn't at the office. I wasn't sitting in front of a laptop or I wasn't, you know, I wasn't having meetings with my boss. I was out in the field. And one of the very practical examples right now that the fundraising community, just like most of the working world is wrestling with, is this notion of going back to work. And a lot of us in the fundraising community are talking about this on social media, about the idea of leaving employers who expect these fundraisers to all come back to the office, you know, and, and I can see, 
I can see how a lot of us are sort of fleeing these jobs that were designed for control and we show up, you know, we have to show up in the office and punch the clock. But I don't know if there's a level of discernment on our part, the people who are perhaps hunting around for other opportunities that are perhaps less, that are, you know, perhaps more based in the field and allow us to work from our home offices and so forth and so forth. I don't know that we're still as, I don't know that we're any more discerning of, of whether or not we're going to work for a control freak who just figures out a different way to control us. Does that make sense? Do you follow what I'm saying? No, you're pointing to something that's super, super important. And we have an opportunity thanks to the pandemic. And I, I don't say that in jest. I mean, I am, you know, I am, I am, uh, you know, my heart breaks for all the suffering that, that, that um, has happened as a result of the pandemic and I, breaks even harder because so much of it was avoidable yeah. at the same time, the pandemic um, as with any adversity um, provided opportunity and lessons. And one of the lessons that it taught was, and I'm going to circle back to, again, your, your initial point, systemic problems, System, institutional education and institutional work are built on an industrial model that's built on on compulsory attendance, coercion, um, and uh, you know, just following. You know, like here's the rules. Follow the rules. If you do that, we'll give you bread and circuses. You know, right. if you get right. good grades, you'll go to a good school and you'll get a good job, and then you can have a spouse, two cars, a house in the suburbs, and. Uh, two weeks, two weeks at the beach every year, you know, th th and that's, you know, that promise has not really existed for most of my lifetime. I mean, it existed for my father and my grandfather, perhaps. And what the pandemic did was it proved that you don't have to make people punch a clock to do work that they love doing, to do work that provides them with identity and meaning. And this idea that we're now like after we've proven that that people can make that people can be productive and make progress and meaningful endeavors from their home without somebody supervising their every move, without making them punch a clock, but that that despite the, the fact that we learned that lesson, we're gonna go back to the way it used to be. That is absolute insanity because that's not the way we're built. We want meaning and identity. And we get that through work. That's a defining human characteristic. Every living thing works. We transfer energy. Plants do it with sunlight and nutrients from the ground and water. And they make and they they grow branches and buds and fruit and flowers. Human beings derive meaning and identity from the work that they do. That's what makes sets us apart from all other living things is this consciousness, this you know, this ego, this identity, this, you know, drive to find meaning and to do that, doing something that's worthwhile. I got a little yeah. ranty there. I apologize for that. that. That's perfectly fine. So, Scott, I really enjoyed uh, the, 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 the handbook. You've written several, and I, and I want to make sure that we get through that. But there were some comments in here, and it, it kind of it, – perhaps it'll be – there were some, some quotes I just want to um, to point out. I want to sort of get you to unpack this, and we'll we'll reference all the books that you've written um, at the end of the podcast. But the first one that really sort of resonated with me, and this this gets to some of the stuff that we've already talked about, um, 
please just sort of, uh, if you would unpack the, you know, in between the lines of these thoughts, the status quo is a a seductive delusion, whether internal or institutional, we are comforted by knowing what we know and knowing our place. Yeah. So uh, in in other books, I've said the status quo um, is not the enemy, but it is in the way. Uh, You know, we are hardwired to love the status quo. We love to know where we stand and what's expected of us. This is, that's what institutional learning and, and work has done. It's leveraged our desire to, you know, understand the rules, follow the rules, do, do the work, get a cookie, pat on the head, whatever. And so it's a, it's a, again, biologically and evolutionary hardwired that we, that we embrace the status quo, but the other, defi- another defining element of being a human being is holding up. We can hold opposing truths in our head and our heads won't explode because although we love the status quo, we also have this aspirational striving nature and we, you know, have this inkling that we can be and do better. And we want to strive for that. Well, how do you, how do you re- resolve this sufficiency in striving? Well, this, you, you, you you do the strive you you recognize that you're sufficient as you are and everything's okay just the way it is. I mean, if the pandemic hadn't happened, I think we would have been really content to have every day look just like the day before it. Things were we were mostly okay. Yeah. What the pandemic did is it it it, it broke the status quo for a time, and we were left to our left to our own devices. We st- suddenly realized. The importance of actual human to human connection, actual human to human collaboration, and we started to strive together to become more and do better. And what that did was it raised our sense of sufficiency. And now we have a new status quo, and then we strive for the next level of you know of becoming, and the sufficiency comes alongside. The status quo wins because we love to embrace what we already know. And we like to know what's expected and where we belong. And the only time the status quo changes is when something undeniably better comes up alongside it. And and we reach a tipping point where people say, you know what, that's actually better over there. And we're going to jump ship. And now, you know, we broke a status quo or bent a status quo and created a new status quo. It's just a story. It's all made up. But we get to make it up if we cho- if we choose to do so. You say the status quo favors those in charge, those in the exclusive club at the top stay there, th- stay there through control and domination. Those winning the status quo game, conf- for those winning the status quo game, confidence and certainty, and even arrogance and sociopathy are rewarded. Yeah. So that's this is you know. We've seen this, uh, and by the way, we like to pick on experts and bosses here on the podcast. <laughs> well, we live in a culture um, that rewards certainty and confidence. And you know, to your point about systemic problems, you know, uh, nobody practices certainty and confidence better than the people that um, you know are in a position of privilege. And those are people um, most frequently that look like you and I, and. And the, the, and that, you know, the status quo is based on the idea of scarcity of resources of opportunity. 
And so, you know, we say there's only this much. And so, you know, we're going to protect ours over here. And actually, we're just going to keep grabbing as much as we can from wherever we can grab it. And, you know, good luck getting yours. And it's, again, totally out of alignment with what I find to be true, which is we live in a time of abundant opportunity, in part because there's abundant uncertainty. Your possibility can only emerge when we let go of our certainties and our overconfidence. And when we collaborate and create and work together to create something undeniably better that provides more abundance and opportunity for others. And abundance and opportunity begets more abundance and opportunity. And if we can just wrap our heads around the idea that by giving access to position and privilege to more is not going to take anything away from anybody. It's just going to create more privilege and opportunity for more. We have plenty, plenty to go around. Um, but the the current system is not creating a, a level playing field and an opportunity for that to happen, which is why we have to be willing to amplify the change that we saw starting to be made during the pandemic, where we can leverage all these powerful tools to create opportunity for more and the possibility for doing better uh, work and creating better opportunities for more people. So I've got several highlights here that where you do something that I have not. So, uh, and let me sort of tee up this comment for you because this may be some research you're not familiar with, but in the fundraising space, we, uh, there was some, there was a study done by EAB education advisory board is a research group based in Washington, DC. And they basically did some, came to some conclusions a number of years ago that our best fundraisers are what they call curious chameleons. Mm. So they were, they were able to identify of a group of about 1200 fundraisers, the best ones out there, there was it was like a five percent slice of the group, right? Um, we're curious chameleons, and what you there, there was a couple of highlights here uh, in what I was reading. Endeavors shun certainty and confidence, and instead embrace curiosity and courage. They commit to employing creativity and compassion in an effort to make things better. Another quote you you say here, curiosity cultivates wonder, inquiry, and delight. It causes an itch. Curiosity feeds a thirst for knowledge. It creates a desire to try, test, tweak. Curiosity is contagious and causes change. What you're doing there, what you're doing there, Scott, for fundraising, and you 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 obviously you weren't writing this specifically for fundraising, but what you're doing there when I read that is it relates directly to fundraisers is there's a lot of things in our practices that are all oriented towards how do we achieve certainty? Like they, we, we have these wealth screening tools. We have feasibility studies. We're doing all these things to basically try to figure out how can we be certain when we pick up the phone to call Mrs. Smith that she'll either take my meeting or she'll write me a check. But what we're also telling ourselves, and as the research shows and as your as as some of your writing here suggests, curiosity and certainty don't sort of they're not on the same side of the they don't work on the same end of the spectrum. It doesn't sound like um, it sounds like to have curiosity, you can't be certain of things um, to be a curious chameleon in the field of fundraising. You can't be certain that Mrs. Smith is necessarily going to pick up the phone. You can't really be any more certain that she's necessarily going to say, yes, she'll give you that check. 
that's part of what curiosity is. Am I right? I think, yeah, I think you've, you've really nailed it. You know, when I say, when I, when I encourage people to shun uh, their um, certainty and confidence, I really mean um, their certainty about things that no one can be certain about and their overconfidence and things in which they have no justified reason to be overconfident. Right. When we step into meaningful work and do that with, um, you know, with purpose and compassion and with a sense of curiosity and consideration, we create a container where where there's just much more room for possibility and true connection, human to human engagement, and can have a conversation around the things that we really care about, which are, you know, causes, which are service, which are, you know, being, uh, you know, I think everybody wants to be a force for good in the world. No, you know, be, except for the occasional psychopath or sociopath, nobody gets up in the morning and says, you know, I wonder how can I manipulate the most people I can today to get what I want? Cause that would make me really happy. That's not the way most people, you know, everybody's doing the best they can and everybody's doing think what they think they have to do. And part of that is because most of our lives are lived unconsciously. 80% of what we do, we do just out of habit. And the other is that circling back to the, the earlier point, our educational and, and work institutions have set up these structures to leverage anxiety, fear, scarcity, want, lack, and and all those things. When we step into our worthiness, when we, when we invest in ourselves and when, you know, one of my favorite quotes is from Goethe, when you trust yourself, you will know how to live. You know, you don't need to achieve these metrics that you're that are being set. You don't need to go through this um, you know, manipulative process that somebody has developed to extract money from another human being. You don't, you know, mm-hmm. to quote my friend Penny, you don't have to treat them like an, an ATM. If yes, you treat right. them like a human being and you engage in human conversation and you, if you create a compelling story about shared purpose and cause and, uh, and service, people will, people will more often than not be much more inclined to give and maybe even give more than then you know then you're asking for because that's what people want people want to feel worthy they want to feel like they belong they want to feel like they have left a mark and done some good in this world before they pass on so i'm a baseball guy and this is a great quote <laughs> for those who endeavor the con- for those who endeavor, the conventional wisdom is to go big or go home. Following this advice is precisely why so few enterprises ever get started or off the ground. Instead of swinging for the fences and then quitting when you strike out, why not strategically focus on base hits? Why not go small? And the, so think about think about this contrast between certainty and curiosity as it relates to fundraising and what you're saying there, Scott. When it comes to the work that we do, I'm often saying to fundraisers that to develop the confidence in that sort of uncertainty, to develop that curiosity, for example, they've got to learn how to take people out to lunch that that perhaps might only give them a $500 check. Um, We have created this 
large, vast gap between the donors who are giving him $116 on Giving Tuesday and the multi-million dollar donor that they're scared to take out to lunch and that they think is a, you know, capitalist white straight jerk like you and I perhaps or something. Um, they, they, they sort of, that's, that's all they see. That's all they see, but they don't see that there's an individual that perhaps gave to them on giving Tuesday, that if they start having more meaningful conversation, this is the conversation I've had with Penny here on the podcast. If they could just learn how to take that donor who gave you $116 and you could be, you could be more curious, that person's probably going to be willing to give them, you know, $500, $1,000, but that doesn't feel like a home run in fundraising. It doesn't feel like a million dollars, but it's also what curates that curiosity and that uncertainty, you know, that comfort level with uncertainty. Do um, you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's, you know, what is the real work? Is the real work just to get money? Cause if that doesn't sound like, um, that doesn't sound like a formula for uh, a lot of a, a sense of flourishing, thriving, and and meaning and purpose. Oh, trust it, me, it's not. <laughs> trust yeah. me, right? When you're when all you're trying to score is thousands and thousands of one hundred and sixteen dollar gifts on Giving Tuesday, and then you can only score twenty five a year of these million dollar gifts from from the rich rich white Mrs. Smiths and Mr. Smiths, and there's nothing in between that we can explore. I I, I describe it like explorers. I mean, it's a lot of what you're describing here in this book. If we don't develop the uh, passion of the explorer, which is what John Hagel in the, on the West Coast calls it, if we don't develop this sort of this willingness to sort of be dropped down into the jungle and sort of explore what the possibilities are, I mean, isn't that the, 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 the meaningful work that we're talking about this whole time? Yeah. Uh, well, you referenced something in that that quote about um, you know swinging for fences versus base yes. hits. You know yes. it, what I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast that is involved in fundraising and you know who hears what what we're talking about says, yeah 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 that sounds good. Except I you know my boss tells me my you know CEO director campaign director is saying you know. You got. You better get fifty thousand dollars out of this guy, or don't come back. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, and, that's, would, and that is their fear. That that's the fear, and that's the, that's the critique that any any two guys like you, any two people speak having this conversation, they're going to say, "Well, that's that's all well and good, Jason and Scott, but I'm not going to keep my job that way." Well, I think there's always the opportunity to. So at Creative on Purpose, we talk about small steps into possibility to go small. And so this, the idea is, um, rather than swing for the fences only to to, to strike out, um, you know, to to go all in and then go bust. What happens if you strategically take small steps into possibility and leverage the things that work? And take the things that don't work and, you know, reassess, rethink, tweak, and retest. And, you know, you can do both things in any given day. You can do it, the you know, the, the regular way, the, the, the way that you're told. And quietly, on the side, you can be having these more intimate, meaningful, connected conversations with people. And if you achieve success with that approach, what I would argue is you don't have to 
use that as a weapon against you know your your boss or your organization or um, the system. You know, you can just you can you can let actually you can let them have all the credit. If what you care about is making a difference in the world, if what you care about is developing yourself through doing meaningful work with purpose on purpose for purpose, then you've got what you need. You're making progress in your endeavor. You're making the world a better place as a fundraiser through whatever cause these donations are supporting. Let your, let your campaign director have the credit. Hey, I took this guy out to lunch and, you know, he, instead of, $116, $116, he gave up, he gave $500 and I'm going to invite him to lunch in six months to talk about the next thing. I mean, there, there are ways, you know, we, we don't have to adopt the fixed mindsets that we're taught to adopt through our institutional education, educational systems and occupational systems. We can leverage, we can reacquaint ourselves with our creative nature, with our, um, collaborative nature with our curious nature and leverage consideration and compassion and, you know, do, do our work within these systems. Um, and when they work, we can just let them work. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to entirely break everything. Uh, you can, you can do, you know, you can do both things. And the other thing is if you're really, really, consistently feeling burnt out depleted you know if 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 the if the only way you can do the work that you're doing is um to to do it in a way that sucks your you know your your essence your life force out you know, you need to have a, a courageous conversation with yourself about, you know, how do you get yourself out of that situation and into a situation where there's a little bit more congruence around who you are and, you know, what you want to achieve in this life. Because we all have limited time um, to make the difference that 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 we're here, you know, put on put on this earth to make. Um, keeping staying invested in in something that's just a sunk cost is just going to continue to uh, is just going to continue to grow the sunk cost. It's not going to grow any opportunity for you to to experience more thriving in in the thing that gives us our greatest sense of thriving, which is work. Scott, before I let you go, one of the things I think I've heard throughout this whole conversation, and I perhaps if I in, in some of your other writing, I, I suspect I would find this too. Is an awareness. It's it's the same awareness that we work with when we when we talk to our clients. We're oftentimes saying to them, we're oftentimes saying that the 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 challenges that they have in organizations with improving their fundraising outcomes are not actually about fundraising per se, but a lot of this is about organizational design. It's about the way that these organizations are designed historically. They're you know they're designed to sort of reflect an early twentieth century sort of machine, like we've talked about a little bit here. Is is that essentially the work that you end up doing too? That regardless of sort of the domain, the disciplines, sort of the, the the professional field you're in, we're all sort of coming to grips with the fact that we're working in organizations that are just designed for the wrong time. I think that's a brilliant insight. I would agree that largely, you know, mm-hmm. most of us find ourselves working 
in institutions and organizations that um, are, are are more in line with the industrial economy and not aligned with the connection and idea economy that, you know, there will be a time in the not too distant future where everything that can be done better by a robot or artificial intelligence will be done by a robot or, or artificial intelligence. Do you want to fight to keep a job that can be done better by right. an algorithm right. or a robot? Exactly. No. Yes. So why why not start to to leverage the things that will make you much more employable, which in the future, which is you know human skills, real skills, the skills of connection, communication, collaboration, creativity, connecting the dots. Um, these are the things that you know that soon businesses are going to be, you know, stepping over each other to hire for. And you can start practicing that with whatever you're doing right now. How can you do what you do right now in a way that's a little bit more human, that's a little bit more connected? How can you look at things with a little bit more curiosity and wonder? How can you be a little bit more considerate and compassionate? And how can you uh, approach the challenges that you face with a little more creativity? Um, and you know you will you will be able to get some thriving and fulfillment, even if you're in a, a work situation that feels like most of the time it's trying to rob you of your humanity. Yeah, I have been saying for years to our fundraising, and my, most of, most of my regular audience knows this. I mean, one of the very few things that a fundraising professional can do and can ensure themselves always having the capability of doing is sitting at a lunch table with another human being and having that meaningful conversation about perhaps a meaningful gift. That's one of the few things that a machine cannot do for us. And, and instead of conjuring up and sort of stirring up all this resentment towards that rich, that whoever that rich donor happens to be, I think we've just got to get better, more persuasive, um, more confident and curious sort of around what that lunch table conversation is going to look like because everything else that a lot of my colleagues are doing out in the field, I mean, and it largely at the, at their desks are things that ultimately I don't think employers are going to pay employees to do. Um, the lunch table is one of those few, few things that we will always have metaphorically the lunch table. We will always sort of have that privilege of doing even, even during the pandemic, Scott, one of the things that I heard consistently, uh, you know, using this venue, for example, what we're doing here as, as sort of a metaphorical, um, lunch table is I heard fundraisers saying, we talked to half as many, I had a guy at the Naval Academy say this to me. He said, I talked to half as many donors in the last year, raised equally about it, equally as much money, but the people that I was talking to in a Zoom platform or something of this sort actually wanted to talk to me. And for an industry that has problems with professional turnover and donor attrition, the best thing I think we could want is to have two people on either side of this conversation want to be there. Yeah. Well, I think that's brilliant. I mean, regardless of the status of the people at the table, you know, the fundraiser and the, and, and the big donor, yeah. they both want the same thing. They want to matter and they, yeah. they are, they're going to get that from doing, you know, something that matters, work that matters. And, um, and and they can both get what they want by having a 
uh, a conversation that matters. Scott, I know you've got some good stuff out there. I've read some of it. I'm curious about the rest of it. There's somebody else who's listening to, I'm sure there's perhaps there's a great many of those people out there who are listening to our conversation today and they're curious how they find more of your stuff. So why don't you tell us how we do that? Do we go to Amazon? Do we go to your website? Do we go somewhere in between? Where do we go um, to you find You can go more to both places. Scott? Yeah, my 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 current uh, book is called Onward, where certainty ends, possibility begins. It's it's a book about embracing uncertainty, navigating adversity, and making a difference doing work that matters by adopting the posture and mindset of a thriving difference maker. And it's a, a it's a short book. It's a hundred and ten pages or so. There's an audio book, a paperback, an ebook. Um, that's a, you know, if, if the ideas that I've been sharing are interesting, that's a great place to start. Creativeonpurpose.com is where you can learn about all the programs that we're creating to help people that seek to, you know, do work that matters, make, uh, are invested in having a social impact and making a difference. Uh, there's a blog and a broadcast with tons of free resources. There's obviously programs that you can pay for and invest in yourself to help you make the change that you seek to make happen. If you prefer to consume things on social media, the only platform I'm currently really active on is LinkedIn. And I share some insight and inspiration there every day that is relevant to the idea to anyone that seeks to fly higher and the difference only they can make. And Scott, the last question I always ask anybody who's in consulting or coaching, I always ask them, who's the person you want to hear from? So if one of my friends, one of our friends in fundraising, say they're a major gifts officer, she works for a museum up in Minneapolis, for example, what do you, who do you want this person to be? And what do you think, what do you expect to sort of hear from her? What do I expect to hear from the fundraiser? Yeah. In Minnesota? If, yeah. Yeah. If she says, I want to talk to that guy, Scott, about some consulting or some coaching. What do you, what, what who is that ideal person you want to hear from? Um, if you are invested in uh, social impact work and I, you know, that's a pretty broad um, category. I mean, currently I work with a lot of people that are in social impact investing, um, yeah. but anybody that is, you know, trying to m- make things better, by doing work that matters with and for people that they care about. I'm happy to have a conversation with you. If you go to creativeonpurpose.com, there's a, a an opportunity to click a link and um, jump on what I call a 15-minute curiosity call uh-huh. where I'm going to ask you, you know, who you are and what you're, what endeavor you're engaged in, where you're at right now, where you want to be, what's in your way. And I'm going to help you kind of find a, a way to get started stepping into pos- into the potential that you see for yourself in that endeavor. Fascinating, Scott. It has certainly been a pleasure. I'm delighted to know that we've got uh, mutual friends. You're always welcome back. Appreciate it, Jason, very much. And I appreciate the difference you make. Thanks for the opportunity. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. 
We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.